Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 81. This week, we're talking to Marianne Soa, the branch chief of the Space Biosciences Research Branch here at NASA Ames. We also have Jack Miller from Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, who's a physicist doing research related to radiation biology in collaboration with NASA. From radiation exposure here on Earth to the effects on the International Space Station, they discuss the really interdisciplinary nature of radiation science and how NASA's Gene Lab project is helping bring people together to answer some of the more subtle questions about radiation. Next week, Gene Lab and the BioData World West Conference will be presenting a big data workshop here at NASA Ames. Participants will learn how people can use GeneLab's tools and really diverse space biology datasets to understand the effects of long-term exposure to space conditions, and how to transfer what we learn from NASA's space-based research into healthcare here on Earth. But for now, let's listen to our discussion with Marianne Soa and Jack Miller. Thanks, Marianne and Jack, for joining me here today. We want to learn a little bit about you and how you work together. So, Marianne, how did you get to NASA? Tell us about your path here and what you're doing today. It's a very long story, and I'll try to keep it short. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, I, I grew up in Alabama, and I always was interested in science. And I went to grad school, actually, in physical chemistry. Oh, which yeah. has nothing to do with what I do research on now. I would actually say I'm a radiation biologist. But Funny. but as part of that, I, um, I have an undergraduate degree in biology. And, and at some point, um, I went to the National Lab. I was at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory for 15 years of my career. And there I got, um, I was actually hired to build a machine that could do single cell irradiations. And so hmm. it was... Uh, Built, built on my skill as a physical scientist to actually build things and do ultra-high vacuum type of work huh. and got me also engaged back in the biology side. And, and as that, my career just kept going that route, and I got really interested in the radiation biology and radiation biophysics field. And as part of that, I spent about 10 years doing uh, systems biology uh, as part of that research, which is systems biology is really just looking at things I would say you could almost say holistically. We look at the whole mm -hmm. system and how how everything integrates together, and how can we how can we answer new questions in unbiased ways by looking at kind of everything as a whole, rather than looking just at the various details of of interactions. And so, so after all of that, um, just absolutely by chance, uh, about two and a half years ago, um, somebody had sent to actually to my husband uh, an ad for a job here. <laughs> and I just said, oh, why not? I, why I, not? I, it was actually not looking for a job at the time, but it was just like, I came, I interviewed, and I just fell in love with the place. Wonderful. And um, have a look back. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's been a really wonderful experience. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I love these career paths that you couldn't yeah. have really planned. Yeah, you know, but you know, it, it, again, another. working at NASA builds on all these kind of interdisciplinary skills, right. because you have the physical science, the chemical science, and also the biological science, and it's completely integrated. Yeah. And so it's just a, a natural fit. For, for my background. Awesome, very mm -hmm. cool. So Marianne, you work here at NASA Ames. Yes. And then Jack is a collaborator with NASA, right? Yes. So can you tell us where you come from and how did you end up working alongside NASA? Well, I was born in, in New York. Um, 
Uh-huh. Well, I was actually um, a space kid. I really, mm-hmm. I really loved space. Nice. I'm dating myself, but I grew up in. Uh, I go all the way back to the Mercury era, uh-huh. and um, was one of those people who would watch every launch live: Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. Being yeah. in front of the TV and watching the Saturn V light up, you know, was really. I get chills thinking about it even now. And I remember being in middle school when John Glenn flew, so and cool. how everybody. The teacher brought in a radio, turned it on, and we listened to it. We listened to the, to the flight when I was in school. <laughs> awesome memory. So I actually wanted to be an astronaut, like mm-hmm. a lot of kids did then. And I started out as an aer- aeronautical engineering major at New York University. This was before the era of scientific astronaut, of you know, mission specialists. So you had to have perfect eyesight. And uh-huh. as you can see, my eyesight is not perfect. And, and you do have glasses on. <laughs> I do have glasses on. So anyway, um, I started off in aeronautical engineering, and I thought I'd get in the space program one way or another. But I took a physics class, what they called modern physics, which is quantum mechanics and relativity, mm-hmm. and fell in love with physics and uh, became a physics major. And after a couple of detours, I wound up going to graduate school in nuclear physics. Hmm. And what that translated into was research in smashing atoms. So I did my thesis research at particle accelerators. After I got my PhD, I took a postdoc with a gentleman named Walter Schimberling, who uh, Marianne knows, who's an old NASA hand, Ah, and was um, doing physics research related to radiation biology for Mm -hmm. NASA. So I wound up coming back full circle, and I... So after I got my PhD, I was working for NASA, getting to meet astronauts, getting to learn what life was like up there, which was very cool. Awesome. The application of that research, well, what we were working on was trying to, um, as physicists, support the radiation biology research. So Mm -hmm. biologists would would come in to irradiate samples. Uh, We would make physics measurements, telling them what 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 kind of radiation their, what kind of doses their samples were getting. Okay. Because they were studying the effects of radiation They on were studying the, the effects of radiation, yes. Yeah. Uh, and alongside that, we also were working with a group at NASA Langley Research Center, mm-hmm. who I still collaborate with, on studying um, the best way to shield astronauts against radiation. Yeah, that's a So big they would send us hunks of material, and we would put oh. them in the accelerator beam and pump a beam at it and see what came out the other side. Oh, ah, cool. Yeah. Do you think we could go back to basics here and talk a little bit about radiation? How does it work? Where does it come from? Yeah. Marianne, if you don't mind, I'll start. Well, I, yeah, I think it's better you start to talk about space radiation, and then I can talk about the biological okay. effects. Um, well, it comes from very, very far away. Okay. <laughs> There are two main types of radiation that astronauts are subjected to in low Earth orbit or outside Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're charged particles. We refer to them as heavy charged particles. What they are is atomic nuclei from the lightest, which is a proton, hydrogen nucleus, to um, everything throughout the periodic table. And the protons come mostly from the sun. Everybody's familiar with solar flares solar storms, you've seen pictures of solar flares. Well, yeah. when, a, when one of those flares erupts, it actually carries with it a lot of protons, high energy charged particles. And mm-hmm. Marianne will talk about why those are bad for you. Yeah. The heavier elements, so everything heavier than a proton, originates actually in supernova explosions. Okay, exploding uh, stars? Exploding right? stars. Yeah. And all the elements in our body, heavier than, well, say helium, actually originated, they were cooked up in the insides of stars. Mm -hmm. 
And it turns out that everything up to iron, which has uh, 26 protons and 30 neutrons, is cooked in the interiors of stars. When the stars explode, the stuff is blown out uh-huh. and travels through the universe and eventually gets here to our solar system. Um, the heavier elements, the elements heavier than iron, are actually created in the explosion itself. So space is suffused with every element in the periodic table, all these charged billiard balls zipping around. And if you're sitting in a spacecraft, they're going to punch right through the spacecraft wall Mm -hmm. and into your body. Um, The Earth's magnetic field, when, when you're in low Earth orbit, the Earth is surrounded by a magnetic field. And the Earth's magnetic field shields against most of the heavier particles. Right. Um, like so deflects them. It, d- it deflects them. It deflects it? them. You know, anybody who's done an experiment, you know, the classic experiment where you have a, a bar magnet under a under a table and you pour iron filings on it and the iron filings line up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Earth has one of those uh-huh. uh, fields around it. Okay. And field, so the yeah. particles come in and they they kind of get deflected by this field. Okay. So astronauts in low Earth orbit are sub- subjected mainly to protons. Once you leave low Earth orbit, so if you're going on a mission to Mars, you're going to be subjected to the heavier particles. Are they more powerful? Are they more harmful? They're more powerful, yeah, yeah in a couple of ways. They're more penetrating because, mm-hmm. they, because they have, they're faster, uh, so they can penetrate most shielding, most practical spacecraft shielding. And once they hit the body, they deposit a lot of energy. What happens to that energy? Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Marianne. Ah, okay. <laughs> I could tell you, but she could tell you a lot better. All right. Take yeah. it away. So, well, when you think about the radiation as it interacts, let's just say, with a person, that energy gets deposited in, I guess, with the space radiation, the, the important point, it gets deposited in a way that we call it highly ionizing, mm-hmm. which means that one particle creates many ionizing, ionization events. And so because of that, it can have a lot of effect on the biology. One of the easiest ways to think about it is that you could ionize um, a part of DNA to make a strand break, and then that would make DNA hard to replicate. Or you uh-huh. could say you, you create what we say is an oxidative stress so that you create basically uh, ionization in the water, which cells are primarily water. And that creates you know, an imbalance in the, in the cellular signaling, et cetera, that can be sustained over time and actually mm-hmm. cause the cell to then you know, change its behavior. A lot of these things are not so serious as inducing a mutation. No? No. Um, you know, yes, radiation can induce mutation, but there's two important things you have to think about with radiation. One is dose, and one is dose rate. Hmm. And in space, the doses that are received from a single particle traversing, because you're only usually getting a particle track in a day. I mean, you're getting very, very little radiation exposure. And that's like an atom. In a day. Of, yeah, right. but you're, you know, that track may have many ionization events along it. But so that maybe, means it's like causing damage along it, the way. It can be, but it traveling. could be damage that's just the body can handle and okay. it can repair. Or it could be that that's actually causing basically what a sustained stress. Hmm. So so maybe that's creating an immune response. And and part of the, the difficulty with space radiation is because it is inherently different than the radiation we're exposed to normally on, you know, in terrestrial radiation, we don't know a lot about the responses. Hmm. And that's that's part of the reason to look at fundamental biology and try to understand the effect of radiation um, in space radiation. 
on fundamental processes and see how we can then predict from what we do know about more terrestrial types of radiation how how that translates mm -hmm. and so that we can understand health risk for astronauts or we can also understand things that could be applied to actually you know health benefits on earth because i i think many people would be aware that proton therapy is a big thing for cancer yeah um, that, you know yeah. and again those are very high doses and very acute dose rate which means how fast do you give the dose um, versus what's in space but many of the effects you're looking at are similar mm -hmm. and and so so trying to understand that and understand you know in these different regimes of how do you give the dose how, how does that affect the biological system? And that's part of what we're looking at here. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. That made me mm -hmm. think of a bunch of questions I hope we get mm -hmm. to later. But first of all, so you're talking about doing some experiments here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And I know there are experiments about this on the space station, aren't there? Mm -hmm. Right, so so doing doing these radiation experiments on Earth is, is difficult. Um, NASA does fund a facility at Brookhaven National Laboratory, which is the, called NSRL, the NASA Space Radiation Lab. Okay. And that is specifically designed to allow these energetic ions that Jack talked about to basically, you know, uh, produce those ions and to look at fundamental biology using the, that type of source. Hmm. Um, there's still limitations to what you can do. You can't replicate the true complexity of what the field looks like in deep space. No. And, it's, and it's just challenging to do low dose rate because if you actually protract that exposure out of a very long time, it's hard to use a facility that people want to share, <laughs> you know, oh. just to have the time to do the experiments. Just so logistically, that, yeah. it would yeah, take so, too long. Yeah, so we are, we're able to do those types of experiments, but we're always going to have some limitations. Um, there is also another another facility that is developed to look at some of the protractions, and that's using uh, neutrons. Uh, so it's a type of the radiation you would see in space. But um, can I get, you explain protractions? I didn't understand. Protraction that. is just saying that uh, you know, rather than giving the dose all at one time, you're giving the okay. dose over a long time. I see. Which right. would be a realistic situation for an astronaut. For yes. Example? What exposed happens in over, space is that yeah. they're exposed over a long time because the radiation is not just you know, it's not here. It, it is constantly on, but there's particles are very spread out in space. Base, let's say, okay. you know, and so you're not getting tracks or radiation events constantly. You know, mm -hmm. they're like maybe one a day, maybe multiples a day, depending on which ion you're exposed to. Okay. And, and know, or if it's a solar particle. Yes. Mm -hmm. Repair processes right. factor in too, right? Yes. And yeah, and, uh, you know, yeah. and cells repair and cells, uh -huh. we have endogenous in our cells, you know, all the time. We do have the same type of stresses. And so sometimes they can just deal with it. Okay. And so, so the cells are prepared yeah, for that. So, so I, I think when we talk about, you know, I've spent my whole my whole radiation career looking at very low dose exposures, mm -hmm. and uh, way I like to think of it is basically you have a have homeostasis in the in the system, and if you give it too much of a stress, maybe you knock it out of that position where it can recover. Oh, you yeah. know, and it may be very subtle, and and so that's where, um, and I think we we'll, we can talk some about Gene Lab here is that that's where we get a lot of power from these very large data sets. So if we just collect all the information we can collect about a system or a process, and then we can start asking very targeted questions mm -hmm. about what really is happening because it may be that 
only a certain part of a cell is responding or maybe several different mm-hmm. pathways in a cell. Cause you can think of what happens in a cell of being like a network of highways. Mm-hmm. You know, there may be several ways to get from A to B oh, yeah. and they may be interconnected. And, and, you know, so we can start looking at questions of how do those interconnectivities actually affect the outcome of what the cell needs to do mm-hmm. and more largely the tissue and the human. Okay. Right. So, so the subtle effects right. mm-hmm. of radiation exposure. Mm-hmm. I think you've covered this in one of your previous podcasts, but here here at NASA Ames, we actually have a, a one of the program, projects we have is actually called Gene Lab, right. and and Gene Lab is a repository for these large data sets. Um, what's important about these data sets is that they're unbiased, okay. and so basically, it's a case where you say. I'm gonna measure something, and I may have a very specific hypothesis when I did this experiment, but I'm gonna make sure that I collect as much data as I can. Mm-hmm. And so Gene Lab's a way to take all those data and then start looking at them in, an, in integrated ways. So maybe, maybe my colleague at Berkeley did mm-hmm. a study and I did my own study, but now I can look at the data that we each collected and try to see if there's, I can ask new questions. And so it's very powerful. And it is particularly powerful for radiation studies because of this where I mentioned that we don't have the terrestrial knowledge of space radiation. Yeah. So we don't always know what the response is gonna be. And we have to do a lot of hypothesizing what we think will happen in deep space exposures to, 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 the, the, bi- biology, to, to, the, to the to the human, to, to the, the biological human. system. So whether it's mm-hmm. fundamental biology or, or health risk, we have to actually be looking at, you know, how do we predict what those what the responses or the risk might be. Mm-hmm. And and so having these large data sets and, you know, a, we can start asking new questions. And what we say is we develop predictive hypotheses. So basically, I can go and say, well, I want to find out if you know this exposure to radiation caused regulation of this process. And I can go and now interrogate this data and ask those questions. And so Gene Labs uh, recently made a rather concerted effort to uh, bring in more of the radiation data. I think they currently have around 150 data sets related to radiation. About half of those are from space flight, uh-huh. and the others are from ground-based uh, studies. And so you um, can make that comparison, then, right? Yeah. And it's multiple organisms. You know, there's cell. There's you know, there's there's cellular studies. There's animal studies. There's different types of of organisms, uh, fruit fly, etc. And and I think one of the things Jack's been working on, that she can explain, is actually trying to now get the um, detailed dosimetry data for the spaceflight exposures to now be able to ask even more questions of that data. So we've got a lot of power in what we're going to yeah, be able yeah. to do with the data that's there. Awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, and you mentioned the the past episode, which was mm-hmm. about Gene Lab with Sylvain Cost, who's mm-hmm. the project manager, right? Yes. Yeah. And he talked about the power of all that data and different kinds of data. Mm-hmm. And you can make, make those comparisons. Mm-hmm. So how does Jack's research come into play here? What are you working on exactly? Okay, well, I left out the last part of my journey from <laughs> Space Kid to, uh, to, to Gene Lab. Mm-hmm. Sylvan and I actually worked together uh, when he was at Lawrence Berkeley Lab doing his thesis research. We go back about 20 years, We've known each other a long time, and after he took the position down here at Gene Lab, uh, we, were meet, we just met for coffee just to catch up. And he was describing what Gene Lab is, and um, especially in relation to the, the biological data that Gene Lab is uh, accumulating from or acquiring from space experiments. And I, and I said, Well, um, what are you doing about radiation? Mm-hmm. And at the time, 
uh, Gene Lab didn't have access to any of the radiation data. And I need to backtrack a little and explain why that is. The space station is a big, complex entity, and the people charged with measuring radiation, they focus on astronaut health mm -hmm. as opposed to basic biological research. Okay. So they have many radiation dosimeters, detectors, flying up there. Uh, and the same thing was true, was true with space shuttle. But they weren't geared toward being integrated with the biological experiments that, that, that were flying. Okay, to make so, that connection. Right, so it's a situation, for example, somebody um, has a biology experiment that's flown in a particular rack in a particular module on space station. And if you want to know the radiation dose that those samples got, because there was no dedicated, there was no detector dedicated to those samples, you need to get the data from one of the other detectors or one of the radiation detectors that was flying monitoring astronaut doses. Right, because and that you, comes yeah. from a different NASA center, from a different different group that's not wow. focused on biology. So one needs to map the radiation data from one branch of NASA onto the biology data from another branch of NASA. Okay, that makes sense. And that's what I'm tasked to do for Gene Lab. So that's going to enhance the data that's in Gene Lab, right, with as extra information. It's about going to add an, an extra dimension yeah. to the data yeah. in, in Gene Lab. Yeah, awesome. One of the greatest unknown risks for manned exploration or human exploration beyond the Van Allen belts is radiation. And yeah, it's because we don't have this terrestrial knowledge. And so, you know, that again adds to, you know, the power of how do we how do we take the what we do know and ask more questions and understand more because we we don't know how to to directly, we can't directly measure this risk. Mm -hmm. We don't have the epidemiology data to actually know what the risk will be. Hmm. And I mean, there are many, many risks and there's many things that affect this, but these, you know, we have to understand this to be able to do these long-term missions. And so, so this is a, this is what drives NASA to, to study these questions. And, and it's also just part of exploration, right? And so, so we do have we do have uh, other projects that are looking at just radiation effects on basic biology as well. Mm -hmm. And so, so we have a lot. We're going to be gaining a lot of information uh, going forward about about these effects and being able to understand more what its impacts on on health and biology are. It's important to note that um, human beings evolved on on Earth in in a in an environment that contained radiation. Marianne mentioned that before. So because we evolved in this environment, our bodies do have mechanisms for compensating, for repair, for example. Yeah, DNA has mechanisms repair. for repairing. Mm -hmm. The radiation that we're going to encounter once we leave the protection of the, the Earth's magnetic field mm -hmm. is different from anything that we evolved in. Okay, so our bodies were not equipped to deal with that. Right. right. So, so to quote a former government official, there are the known unknowns and there are the unknown unknowns. Uh -huh. And there are a lot of unknown unknowns in biology. Interesting. Yeah, and, and what Gene Lab is doing, my, you know, hence my reference to big data earlier, is that, as you may know, there's been a trend in in science over the past decade or so, to to attack problems um, by looking at um, looking at large data sets that might not seem that they're obviously related, mm -hmm. but looking for patterns, looking for connections in those data, and Gene Lab uh, is is going to give a lot of investigators who haven't had that ability before, the, the power to do that by accumulating those data, systematizing them, organizing them, right. and making them accessible, right, right. including to the general public. I think there's part of 
There's a public access to some of GeneLab's data, right? Yeah, all the data becomes publicly available once it once it's been uh, validated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all becomes publicly available, and so so anyone could go out, go in, and interrogate that data. And I remember from Sylvain's episode, the GeneLab is creating mm-hmm. visualization tools, right? To, right. To see. Right. They are doing a lot of a lot of tool development. I I can't really speak to a lot of details on that, but yes, they're trying to make it so that. The data is organized and has an architecture where it'll help the community to be able to work together collaboratively mm-hmm. and interrogate the data. So, so yeah, they will have visualization tools, other other tools of how to you know use this data in other programmatic platforms that people would want to use in the science community. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. something I, I've noticed since I started in the relatively brief time I've been working with Gene Lab, is that the data scientists play a, as large a role as the biologists do. Mm-hmm. So just to take an example, when I get some data from Johnson Space Center from the radiation side and I feed it to, to GeneLab or transfer it to, to GeneLab, normally in physics, you take the data, you put it, maybe you put it in Excel or some other program, You've, you have a plot, you generate a plot, you put it in a paper and get your publication. What I discovered very quickly was that for, for GeneLab, the data scientists are very, very specific about how they want data formatted okay. so it can be of most use to the, to the broader community. Good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm learning, but I'm, I've actually been struck by how, how demanding organizing big data, what a demanding task that is, right. organizing the data. Right, right. But that's crucial, right, if it's to be useful and have people come and make the best use of it. It needs to be organized that way. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. So in this story that you've shared so far today, we have been on the space station with astronauts exposed to a certain kind of radiation, but protected by Earth's magnetic field. We've been out in deep space, envisioning the future of human exploration, and also on the ground, simulating space radiation here. Um, where where else will this take us? Can you imagine what you're learning through these studies and gene lab, et cetera, being used here on the Earth for medical applications? Is it that kind of radiation? There's definitely a lot of um, therapeutic uses of, of the same type of radiation. I mean, I, I mentioned briefly before proton therapy. Yeah. The the way the energy gets deposited in um, for this very energetic type of particles allows you to position the dose in a certain way, and uh-huh. so it actually allows uh, different therapeutic protocols so that so that you can really target the radiation to a tumor site, mm-hmm. and so it's very effective to certain cancer therapies. You know, but there's also, as uh, Jack was saying, the, the the great unknowns. We we don't know all the effects, right? And so so there's definitely going to be other benefits to doing this. One one really great thing about radiation studies is there's an on-off switch. You know, you can turn radiation off, you can turn it on and off. And, mm-hmm. and if experiments. we, yeah, mm-hmm. and so if we think of it again as, as kind of a general stress response and telling us something about um, how the, the biology responds in general to stress or it could even be immune response, et cetera, the fact that we can turn it on and off gives us a very targeted way to do our studies hmm. for fundamental research. And so that that's actually very powerful when we start to ask new questions. And and so that's again a place where you can generate your hypothesis and say how how does this how can I look at this effect? And and I think that's a a place where when we look at low doses um, where we're not trying to kill a cell with radiation, mm-hmm. which is what you're trying to do in therapy, we can use it as a tool to help us understand a much much broader questions in terms of 
aging, stress, just general immune stress responses, oxidative stress. Um, Many of these questions are actually things that the radiation community are interested in. Wow, okay. So radiation Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. much more. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I discovered when I, when I joined the group at um, Lawrence Berkeley Lab that was working with NASA, I was interacting with biologists across all of those fields. And I, uh, you mentioned aging, Marianne. There was one particular scientist who focuses only on aging, but she was using radiation as a, as a tool, and I would never have guessed that there was a connection there. Yeah. Another colleague focuses on cataracts. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. and. Pretty much everybody is going to get cataracts if they live long enough. A former colleague of mine used used to tell his audiences, I hope you all get cataracts, because it's a way of saying, I hope you live a long time. <laughs> uh, he had a kind of an odd sense of humor. Some scientists use radiation as a way to kind of jumpstart the cataract process to try and, and study, um, study cataracts in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you just waited for normal normal aging. That's interesting. And that makes me think of the space station, right? Because I understand that a lot of the biology studies in space are kind of using the the conditions up there to accelerate the effects of aging on a fruit fly, for example. So Jack's comments about the data scientists being as important as the biologists in this, and even your backgrounds make me think how interdisciplinary all of this work is. Is that something you're finding more and more? Yeah, I think it's very clear that in order to answer questions like this that we don't have a lot of information on and that are very hard to answer just because of the, you know, where do you find where do you find the place to do this experiment? You know, we don't have a lot of experiments that go into deep space. Mm-hmm. But also at very low doses where the effects are very subtle. Yeah, you know, so, the, so the effects at the right dose for us are, are not going to be very obvious. And so it turns out it's, it's, it's a great place for team science. Hmm. And, and it's a great place for yeah, putting all these all, all different expertise into the same place. Radiation sciences is fortunate in many ways to actually be an interdisciplinary field by its nature. Oh, yeah. you know, we, we're, we have the biologists and the physics, and, and most, most of us speak both languages because we have to. Mm-hmm. And now looking, you know, with what happens with Gene Lab and systems biology, that's, you know, expanding that even further to say, yes, now now we're integrating with the dosimetrist, we're, we're integrating with the, the data systems uh, people and that, you know, that can do all the data handling and now with visualization. So putting those teams together and have them talking together from the beginning, not from, oh, now I suddenly need an answer. Right. Uh, that's that's really where the the subtle questions are going to get answered. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. that's why you work among mm-hmm. different groups mm-hmm. at NASA and then also with researchers outside with their own specialties, right? Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, for example, a typical teleconference uh, that I'd be involved in in this project, would have on, you'd have on the line nuclear physicists, high-energy physicists, radiation biologists, radiation biologists who started out as nuclear engineers, <laughs> as Sylvain did, data scientists, people who are used to talking to uh, to the flight surgeons at Johnson Space Center. You'll have people from multiple NASA centers. So it is very much an expression of that interdisciplinary nature. That's fascinating. This has all been very fascinating. Radiation is something we hear about a lot, but we don't necessarily know all those details you got us today. Well, thank you very much for coming in, both of you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. And to our listeners, if you have questions about radiation biology and the data going into Gene Lab, you can contact us and we'll get your question to Marianne and Jack. You can find us at the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. And if you want to see Gene Lab yourself and see what it's got to offer, the address is genelab.nasa.gov. Mm-hmm.